welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy and I'm your host for today's episode and this is episode 29. As always, if this is your first time listening, these episodes are available on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify at All Things Erie from Erie PA and that's Erie with three E's and Instagram at Kathy B-R-D-L-Y. And today's episode 29, like I said, and we're going to be talking about a case that happened in the city of brotherly love and or what they would like to think it would like to be known for, I'm sure. Before we get into that, I am going to apologize for this being late. These episodes usually uh, upload on a Wednesday Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning, the case that we're going to talk about, which is about Willie James Kent, was so fascinating, but also frustrating at the same time, because there wasn't a lot of information. And then when I started to dive into the information, there was just so much cross referencing. It was just wow. Because you don't realize how much of what could be going on out there. And once I start talking about this, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And like I said, this is in Philadelphia, not Erie. And Philadelphia, like any other city, has had their ups and downs. And in 2003, certain sections in Philadelphia... They just weren't doing as well, just like any other city in the U.S. And there was crime and shooting halls. And if you're not familiar what a shooting hall is, shooting hall is where people go to shoot up drugs. Like I said, just like any large city, and we're fairly close to Pittsburgh, which is just a couple hours south of Erie. If I wanted to, I could go find the same type of places. Hell, I could go find the same type of place here in Erie. But on February 28th, 2003, For a certain person that was looking for scrap metal that day in row houses, his day changed forever. And while looking for that scrap metal, he found a body on the first floor of a a trash-strewn abandoned row house. And what that person did, he did the right thing. He called the police. And when the police arrived, they looked around and they thought it was going to be a normal homicide investigation. And that was until they turned the body over and got a look at what had been done. And what the police found was that the victim had had a rope tied around his neck. His throat had been slashed and the chest had been cut open from his neck to his stomach. and his heart, one lung, and other organs, like his kidney, had been cut out. Once the police had been able to ID this victim, Willie J. Kent, it was kind of a dead giveaway when I said the name at the beginning, the police had made note that Mr. Kent had apparently been dead for one or two days And authorities had said that he had been wearing blue jeans, sneakers, a sweatshirt, and a fatigue jacket. Police also had been trying to determine whether Mr. Kent's death was a homicide 
or whether someone had mutilated the body after he died of natural causes or a drug overdose. What they were able to find out about Mr. Kent was that up until that point, he had been staying on and off with his daughter, Latrice Bryant, and that he was an alcoholic and that everyone that he had worked for loved him. Also, that Mr. Kent still swept the one section of a street where he worked while he was alive. This guy had a life. He still worked in certain sections. He could find work, but his issue was alcoholism. But he wasn't a mean drunk. He was a happy drunk. As And as one officer put it, when they found Mr. Kent, it was like, a frog in biology class. Also, not at the scene, like I said, was Mr. Kent's heart, liver, and kidneys, and nor were there was there any evidence that Mr. Kent had bled out at the scene. These were clean cuts, like whatever monster that was responsible for this knew his or her way around surgical instruments. And in other research for this podcast, I saw that there was a mention of his body being pumped up with morphine. And that is important because, again, in other research, it's only mentioned that he was an alcoholic. Never was it mentioned that he had prior drug use. And morphine is a huge indicator of drug use. Why all of a sudden that day would he have morphine in his system? Now, did the person who did this originally grab Mr. Kent by buying him alcohol and then gave him a shot of morphine? Because like I said prior, Mr. Kent was a happy drunk and that once he started to drink, they said that he loved everyone. He would just go up to people and say, I love you. And we all know that person. We all have that friend that once they start drinking, his, I love you, man, man, I love you. That's the kind of drunk that Mr. Kent was. So if they're plying him with alcohol, how easy would it be to get up next to him and give him a shot of morphine? And not only that, Willie Kent was only five feet tall. He still would have been small even for an average sized woman but however he would have had the upper body strength of a man even though he was in his 60s you cannot discount discount him because of his age so depending on the size of the person would have depended on what type would have depended on what that person would have needed at that time but again you ply somebody with alcohol, uh, just enough alcohol, it lowers their inhibitions and you just need to get up close enough to give them a shot. And then it's lights out. So where do the police begin? Like with most cases, who benefits from his death? He was technically homeless, so he didn't have any money. He didn't have a house, ex-wife, new girlfriend. So who benefits from his death? So then which way do they go? What leads did they have? They didn't have any. Was he the only one? Now, while doing this research, and I have to admit, finding information for this particular case 
wasn't that easy. And I did try to reach out to one of the folks who did a blog about this case. And I didn't think it was appropriate to reach out to his daughter at this time, especially with everything going on. And the person I did reach out to, the email was, it came back invalid. But while poking around on the internet, there were several stories about the Chinese selling body parts of their prisoners that quote unquote would die. But there were several articles on those. Investigators have all but ruled out a connection between Mr. Kent's death and then there was a stabbing death of a 64-year-old homeless woman whose body was found that January 28th in 2003. She was found in a camper behind a vacant building four blocks from the spot in the 1500 block of North 8th Street where Mr. Kent's body was found. But there was another article found about a homeless man who was also black, about five foot seven, with a small build, and he was between 30 and 40 years old. Now I want you to listen to this. The discovery was made by a man foraging for scrap metal who called the police, the police said there wasn't much blood in the room where the body was found or any sign of the missing organs. And trash was strewn everywhere, including a bedspread found beside the body, raising the possibility that the man was killed and dissected elsewhere. This is almost down to the T of the murder of Willie J. Kent. And this happened in, the in April of 2003. So it was only two months later, even down to being found by someone who was looking for scrap metal. To me, that's a little too coincidental. And the person who found this guy, was it the same one? This leaves me with more questions than answers. And of course, who am I going to ask? I can't call the police because these are open cases, they're not gonna tell me anything. But there was an article that was written nine years later and the writer went back and visited Mr. Kent's daughter to see how she was doing and to see if she had any insights into the case. And the place where her father was killed at that time was an empty lot, which really seemed appropriate. To put anything else seemed unless it was going to be something to help people would seem to be hurtful to Mr. Kent's spirit. So I looked it up on Google, Google maps to see if anything else had been put there. And as of today, it still sits as an empty lot. But back to what I was saying, Mr. Kent's daughter had no other insights on who would have done this terrible thing to her father. She has not had anything from the detective on the case. She believes that her father was held by restraints and I believe she's talking about other than about the rope on his neck. Who could have been that cold and callous to do that to anyone, let alone a 60-year-old man? But if you think about it, which hospitals are in the tri-state area? And you'll have to follow me on this. And I know we've had a couple episodes where, where I've said, and you'll have to follow me on this. And this isn't my idea. There is a paper from a very respected doctor that went undercover for selling organs on the black market. So I looked up which hospitals that were close and I looked up the funeral homes that were accused of selling body parts. I'm not going to name names for the hospital since that can get me into a whole lot of hot water. But if you look up North 8th Street, it's a hop, skip and a jump from the funeral home 
to where Mr. Kent was killed to the local hospital for the organ transplant procedure. I shit you not. Now, when I talk about the funeral homes, there were two funeral home homes where people were indicted for selling body parts. Yes, you, and you can look up these articles. Even though the police claim that the organ theft scam didn't start until a year later, but that's what they know. I don't think these folks are going to cop to a couple of murders, do you? Two of them, the Grazone brothers, voluntarily surrendered, surrendered their license to the, to the state. The other person, Mr. McCafferty, had his license revoked by the state of PA. And these people were paid approximately $1,000 per person, per body, I should say, that they, that they gave over to the company that was literally stripping the dead for their parts. They did this knowing that it was unethical and that they were not able to be used. Some of the people had died of cancer, sepsis, HIV, and hepatitis. These men would take what they needed and then fake the paperwork and ship them off to the local hospitals, such as Temple, Thomas Jefferson, Albert Einstein, and Hanneman, just to name a few hospitals that had been named in the lawsuits. Those that received the unsuitable donors now have lodged cases against these men also. Not only did they use unsuitable donors, they also defrauded the welfare program that is used to help the poor with burial expenses. As an example, there were five children that died in that area, and the singer Stevie Wonder had paid over $1,000 for each child to be buried. However, these people still billed the welfare program $750 each. Greed is a terrible thing. It's not like people are going to stop dying. There will always be business in this particular industry. But where does that leave Mr. Kent and the other victim? Their crimes are left unsolved. For the research that I can do for my home in Erie, there wasn't any other articles that popped up like that. And I looked for articles in New York City, in New Jersey, in those particular areas to see if there was anything else that popped up like that. But there were several articles about bio companies that would harvest people's organs before the coroner would get there to look over the body, which made it harder, if not impossible, for the coroner to properly do their job. And I'm not talking just a heart here and a lung there. No, the company would take large patches of skin and make long incisions in the arms and take not just a heart, but lungs, liver, and kidneys, and anything else that they could even if it messed up a police case. And in these cases, this happened in Los Angeles, but it wasn't just once in a while. It, it happened quite frequently. Am I saying not to donate your organs? By no means, I'm not, I am not saying that. I myself am an organ donor. My partner's best friend passed away a few years ago and when he did, his organs were donated. And the organs that they could use went to several people. But my caution is, is that there are people out there that are hurting others to get that needed organ and then putting it up for the highest bidder. And that is not how it should be. There is only one place that you can openly sell organs and that is in Iran. Elsewhere, it's illegal. But those with money will find a way to get what they want and or need. Sorry that this story was a short one. 
I decided to talk about this one still because it was a fascinating case. I hope to hear more about Mr. Kent, hopefully, that they find something else. But since this was a short case, I'm going to talk about another case that I came across while researching Mr. Kent's story. And this story is about a young woman named Mary Rogers. And she lived in New York City during the 1800s. She was born in 1820 to Mary Rogers. And I'll try not to get it confusing during this story because they're both named Mary Rogers. Our Mary Rogers that we're speaking about, her father died when she was five. So that left Mary's mother to feed and take care of their small family. And with living in a city, Mary's mother would rent rooms to their home to make ends meet. In doing this, Mary learned how to take care of a home, and Mary apparently was a beautiful child who turned to grow up into a very beautiful young lady. When Mary was 20, she drew the attention of John Anderson, who owned a tobacco shop. And John thought, since Mary was a beautiful young lady, that if she was in his shop, he would get more business. But first, Mary had to convince her mother that nothing improper would be going on. Now, I have to remind you that at this time, women still had to have chaperones and they had to refer to the head of the household if they wanted to do something. And usually the head of the household was a man. But Mr. Anderson's intuition was correct. With Mary in his shop, he received more business and Mary would smile sweetly at the customers and that was all that she did. And this went on for about 10 months when in January of 1841, Mary just didn't show up for work. And this isn't like today when young kids are no call, no show. No, if you had a job, you showed up. No work, no money, no food. There wasn't any federal help like there is today. So this was strange for Mary not to show up. And she didn't show up for six days or more. And because Mary was quite popular, the press actually gave it some publicity. That's how popular she was for this cigar shop. Then all of a sudden, Mary is back. No word on what happened, but they noticed that there was a change in Mary's behavior. Not only that, Mary just didn't smile the same way as she did before. She just wasn't the same. Then there were rumors that started. The rumors were that Mary had been seen in New York City with a naval officer, which in this time, an unmarried woman being seen with a man was a bit of a scandal. And just like any rumor, it spread through the town like wildfire whether true or not. Then a month later, it was announced that Mary was engaged to a Daniel Payne, and Daniel was a boarder at Mary's mother's home. On the morning of July 25th, 1841, Mary had told Daniel that she would be spending the night at her aunt's home, and Daniel said that he would call on her later that night. Call on means coming to see her for a date or coming to get her. But however, there was a storm that night and Daniel ended up staying home. And as he lived at Mary's mother's house, he explained to Mary's mother that since he would have to bring Mary home in the storm, he would not want her to get soaking wet and possibly get her sick. And Mary's mother was fine with that explanation. And because Mary was due to come back that following day anyways, she was fine. However, Mary never came back and Mary's mother became very distressed over this because it just wasn't because Mary didn't come back one night, it was two nights. And then again, 
And the reason why Mary's mother was becoming very distressed, it wasn't like the last time when Mary disappeared. She knew she just felt something was off this time and also how Mary had been dressed when she left. Mary had been wearing lighter clothing when she had gone to her aunt's home. By that Wednesday morning, there were some fishermen working by Castle Point in the Hoboken area. And unfortunately, they found Mary's mutilated body floating near the shore of a saloon called Sybil's Cave. Now, I have to give you a trigger warning. <clears throat> Mary's once beautiful face, because remember, she was a beautiful child. She was a beautiful young lady. So beautiful, in fact, that men clamored to this cigar shop just to get a glimpse of her, to be around her. Her face had been beaten to a pulp and was terribly swollen. Around her waist was fastened a cord and to the other end, a very heavy stone. Around her neck was a piece of lace that had been torn from her dress and was tied so tightly, that's how they think that she was strangled. Sunk deeply into the flesh of both wrists were the marks of cords and her light kid gloves were, were on her hands and her bonnet was hung by its rib ribbons about her neck. Her clothing was so badly torn and the investigations made by the physicians revealed the fact that she had been brutally raped before her death. As usual, the boyfriend was questioned, but he had an alibi, Mary's mother. A large reward was offered for any information about this. But oddly, someone sent an anonymous letter saying, saying, of this writer, this writer was saying that they had seen Mary in the Hoboken area that particular Sunday while they had been walking in the Alaysen fields. Um, I hope I'm saying that correctly. And that Mary, where Mary had gone missing. Not only that, but it goes, this letter goes on to say that the person saw Mary in a boat with six burly men and they had gone ashore into a wooded area in those fields. They, meaning the six burly men and Mary, had just gone into the woods when there was a second boat that came along with three well-dressed men, and one of the burly men came back out to meet the well-dressed, one of the well-dressed men. The One of the well-dressed men had asked if they had seen a young woman. One of them, and the one man had indicated that he had, and then they walked off into the woods. Now, I'm thinking so much is wrong with this letter. First, supposedly, this is a person that was walking along in the fields. Then how did, how, okay, how in the hell did he hear, overhear this entire conversation? This person had to have been right there. There's no way someone standing off and away would have interpreted any of this. Seeing that they were burly? Yes. Seeing that it was Mary? Maybe. Seeing her clothes? Yes. Hear their conversation? No. Unless they were right there. And the same with the other boat. Another piece of information was from a stage driver named Adams, who said that he had also seen Mary in the Hoboken area, but he had seen her at a place called Bull's Ferry and that she was accompanied by a tall, well, well-dressed, dark complexion man. And somehow they were to go to those fields. I, I mean, unless he was 
paid to take them there. I don't know how he knew. Then there was Mrs. Loss. She was a housekeeper. She remembered a man described as that that had come into her place with a young woman on the day that was questioned, that's in question, and had gone into the woods after having refreshments. Soon after they left, Mary and this man, Mrs. Loss heard a woman's scream coming from the woods. But she thinks as the place was the resort of questionable characters and such sounds weren't unusual, Mrs. Loss never gave it a second thought. I'm thinking, what kind of place is this? Um, Prostitution? What? Because me personally, as a female, I would be looking out for other females. That's just me, especially if I have children running around. I don't know. But then again, I didn't grow up in that time period. The exact spot where Mary was brutally raped and then butchered was described by Mrs. Loss' children on September 25th, exactly two months after the murder. While these children were playing in the woods, they found a dense thicket where Mary's white petticoat, a silk scarf, a parasol, and a linen handkerchief marked with the initials MR. Also on the ground area was in, in the ground area was torn up and the shrubbery was trampled as if the spot had been the scene of a terrific struggle. And leading out of the thicket was a broad track as if it had been made by dragging a body through the bushes. And it led in the direction of the river, but was soon lost in the woods. And all of the articles that were found were identified as having been worn by Mary on the day of her disappearance. Now, I have a little bit of problem with this. Two months later, would there have been a huge area like that? And would it have been still trampled down like that? I don't know. I am not in forensics. But I do have an issue with that. Would her stuff had still been there? Possibly. I mean, as long as there was nobody there to mess around with it, it would still be there. But for it to be as trampled as they're claiming, to me, that seems like people were still there trampling the area. Every effort had been made to find the well-dressed, dark-complexioned man. But it was believed that Mary's mother knew more than what she said, which I'm sure she did. And it could have been what she knew didn't, would not have gone over well for her family. Now, Daniel Payne, he never recovered from the death of Mary. And he was found dead from suicide with a note by his body where near where Mary was found. And some even thought it was confession. And this is what the note said. To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. You take that what it is. Mary's murder gained so much notoriety that even Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem about it. The Mystery of Marie Roguet. Now, some think that this is the first poem that was taken and written about a real murder case. Not only was it the, they believe it was the first case, but Edgar Allan Poe switched it from being in the U.S. to being in Paris. And the murder for the person who murdered Marie changed. Now, however, there was a confession of sorts from a tavern owner who was shot by one of her sons. And on her deathbed, she stated that Mary had actually died from a botched abortion and that her her son 
the tavern owner's son, had helped throw Mary's body into the water. But it doesn't explain Mary's injuries, why she was strangled and such. Some had thought this was done, that the abortion had been done by Madame Restel. She was an early abortionist who had practiced it while it was still a felony. Restel, she would later cut her own throat in her bathtub in 1878, and she is interned in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Mary's murder would never be solved. Was it the well-dressed man? Was she raped by the group of men and thrown into the river? Or was it her fiancé who, upon learning that Mary's small fame had gone to her head and started to take lovers and became pregnant and went to get an abortion and it went wrong? No one will ever know. But I just hope that Mary's soul is at peace. I hope that you enjoy these two cases. Please don't forget to rate the podcast on podbean.com, iTunes, and we are also available on Spotify, Facebook, and Twitter at All Things Eerie from Eerie PA, and that's Eerie with three E's. And we're also available on Instagram at Kathy, B-R-D-L-Y. And if you have your, your ideas on who had killed Mary, let me know or your thoughts on the Kent case. Please let me know. While we are still stuck in our homes during this pandemic, please stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off. <laughs>